But about eight years ago, while I was in seminary, of all places, I fell into an addiction towards gambling. I was a deacon at a church, and I uh, thought I was very clever that I could play something called daily fantasy sports and be more clever than other people and take their money for the glory of God. What I said to myself and what I told my wife and other people is that I'm plundering the Egyptians and pouring out these resources for the kingdom of God. And I did for a while. I was making a lot of money relative to my stature and age, and I also worked for a company. And I talked my wife into letting me do this and, and everything, and, and I had all my justifications. If you were to ask me why I'm doing it, I would say for Jesus, I'm, I'm using my time well, I'm good at it, and all that kind of stuff. But the question I have to start off is, what do you do when you blow it real bad, you screw up, and you know that God had something better for you, but you chose a different path You hardened your heart towards him and his voice. You stubbornly put your head down and pushed through to have what you wanted. And in doing so, you brought great destruction and hurt. Because eventually, that path led to losing thousands of dollars that I could not afford, that I could not afford to lose, and a very broken heart of my wife as she had to wrestle through how to forgive me, though I promised her that this would never happen like this. Now, that's my part of my story, just one episode of many failures. But what do you do when you blow it, when you knew that God was calling you separately? Because I knew in my heart I was idolizing this, idolizing the thrill, the money, the gain, the feeling of being clever and smarter than other people. And maybe you're, you didn't do that like me, but you know what it feels like to put your head down and push through when the Holy Spirit is prodding you saying, no, 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 that's not my way. And you have all your justifications and how you can do it the right way. And yet you push through. What do you do in that situation when you fall on your face? And more importantly, what does God do if you come back to him? What is he like? And in our passage this morning, we see God being extremely merciful to Abraham After God encountered him radically, Abram has this huge surge of faith and trust, walks forward in the promises, leaves all that's behind him, leaves security, leaves his family, and enters into an unknown land. He's looking really good. But what happens? He immediately walks into the promised land, and the promised land is full of famine. And so... Abram thinks to himself, well, I need to fulfill and make these promises happen. God said he would bless me and bless my family and bless all the peoples of the world through me. So I need to survive because if I die, the whole dream goes with me. So he thought wisely in itself. We thought wisely. And he journeyed to Egypt, Egypt, where there was plenty. And he creates this clever but absolutely low cowardice plan to save his butt By pretending that his wife is actually his sister so he's not killed. Forgetting that God promised in Genesis chapter 12 that if he, uh, that, that God would bless him in such a way that if those who dishonor him, God would curse him. That's God's promise. God promised that he would protect them. But he doesn't trust God in those moments. He thinks that God needs some help. That he needs to take things in his own hands to protect the promises that God gave him. And what, what, what happens? His wife is taken and, and I, I was just talking to Pastor Ross about this last week. What was Abraham's plan to get out of this? <laughs> like, what was, the, what was the plan B of what happens? Because Pharaoh took his wife as his own wife. 
And yet God in his mercy rescues Abram from that situation and in, so in, in plunders the Egyptians and Abram comes back. And that's where we find ourselves in our story. Abram is humbled. And what we're going to see is that he is now actually trusting God. And that trust doesn't stay cerebral, but it actually overflows with great generosity and fruits. And Abram is going to be held in contrast to his nephew Lot. We're going to see that. Lot is one who doesn't live by faith, but by sight and by flesh and desires. While Abram is learning, keyword learning, to see by the eyes of the spirit and faith and trusting God. So that's the passage we have this morning. And let's dive in to Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. Let's see what God does throughout this passage. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, or Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first, and there Abram called upon the name of Yahweh. It's interesting, he's starting over from where he last was. It's almost like he delayed the promises for a little bit after his significant detour and disobedience, but God is there and his altar is still there. The altar that Abram made when God first gave him those promises, the altar's there, which suggests that the promises are still standing, which is really, really good because all of us here have delayed in obedience at times, maybe a lot of times, and yet God is still patient and waiting for us. And just because we're unfaithful doesn't mean that God's faithful promises still cannot come to pass. God is merciful and patient with his people. And we're going to see that increasingly throughout Genesis. But something that's interesting to note is that Abram is coming back to Israel, uh, to, to the promised land with great wealth, blessing, livestock, you name it. <clears throat> and it's interesting because God promised that he would bless Abram. And yet Abram received these blessings illegitimately. He does it through a sinful manner, out of unbelief and deception and trickery. That's not God's original heart for how he wanted to bless him. And yet God has blessed Abram, which is an interesting observation for us to really take at heart. Because if you're like me, you are result-oriented. Which means whatever you see as a result of an action, you will then deem it successful or not, right? I did this, therefore this happened, it was successful. I did this, this happened, it was terrible. That means it was a failure. And in this situation, what Abram did was actually unfaithful, lack of trust, and yet God in his mercy still blessed him. And this is important for us because if we are primarily results-oriented in all of our decision-making, we can often do something sinfully, out of faith, lack of faith, not trusting, and because God is kind, something good comes from it. And we can wrongly conclude that therefore God was pleased with my process. You, you know what I'm saying? That's very, very dangerous. That we will look at our outcome and then therefore assume that God is pleased with us. And it goes the contrast to the opposite. Maybe your outcome is terrible, but you are faithful and God is pleased. And therefore, you wrongly conclude that God is not pleased with you and you did something wrong. Throughout scriptures, we see results not always landing with the process. And you, do not, you cannot let your result 
tell you if God is pleased or not. God was not pleased with Abram's actions, and yet God was still merciful. And so we need to remember to check our hearts lest we think that because things are going well, that God is pleased with the process. In our section, we also are reminded about Lot. Lot was silenced in the last part of the chapter, but he was with Abram and he was blessed with Abram too throughout Egypt. But what we're going to see in Genesis is that Lot and Abram are going to be held up as contrasts. And the Bible does this a lot. We see this with um, King David and King Saul. We see this with Cain and Abel. We see this throughout the scriptures where the, the writer is going to highlight two individuals to show the different contrasts of way they can relate and respond to God. And so throughout Genesis, we're going to see increasingly Abram is the man, imperfect as he is, the man of faith. And Lot is the man led by flesh and by sight. Let's look at verse six now. See what happens between Abram and Lot. Verse six. Remember, they have great wealth so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. Well, this should be intuitive, but if you're not used to being around livestock, you understand that when you drive through the country, they have a ton of land. You don't see cattle sitting in a Minneapolis backyard, right? You need a ton of land, a lot of grazing land. You need water. And right now they are so wealthy that they cannot share the land without impeding on the other peoples who are on that land as well. And so you can imagine different herdsmen waking up trying to get to certain land to graze with their livestock trying to get first dibs and other people like hey that's my land no this is my land i was here first or here i was here yesterday and fighting and quarreling and building more animosity as they're trying to seize things for themselves because it feels like there's not enough for both but what do we see abram does something powerful look at verse 8 Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourselves from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go the right, or if you take the right, I will go the left. By proactively giving Lot the first choice, Abram is nipping in the bud any potential for animosity or jealousy. This is amazing because who is Abram in relation to Lot? He's the uncle. So in in our culture and especially that culture, he's the top dog. He should get first priority. He should be able to tell Lot, you go here, I go here, I'm the uncle, you do what I say, and that's fine, and nobody would bat an eye. Everyone say, that's right. But Abram lays down what is rightfully his and lets Lot choose in order to maintain unity. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like the entire Bible? And doesn't that sound like our precious Jesus who lays down his rights so that he can bring unity and reconciliation? And doesn't it sound like all throughout uh, 1 Corinthians and what we're called to as Christians to love sometimes gives up what is ours for the sake of others? And that's what should shape Christians. Your life should be characterized as regularly laying down that which is rightfully yours, not seizing and holding on to it, but letting it go for the sake of love 
and unity. And in fact, Abraham doing this suggests something deeper has happened in his heart. God is working and renovating his heart where he's now trusting God's promises that he doesn't have to seize these promises by himself. He can actually entrust those promises. See, when you are trusting God and your hands are open because you know he's the one who's ultimately providing, you don't need to hold on. But when you are not trusting, you're doing this. You're clinging. So therefore, you can't be generous because you have to hold on. Because if you let go, then you won't have enough. But Abram is slowly learning that God can provide and he's opening his hands up. Chapter 12, there's a famine. Abram thinks God won't provide. So let me take things in my own hands. Now in chapter 13, God will provide so I can generously share with my nephew. Lot should have said, uncle, no, you get it. You're the one who should get this. You're the one who's the leader. But yet Lot just stubbornly, and we're going to see more of his heart, just pushes forward to get whatever he wants. It's interesting that though Abram says the whole land is before them, you see how he says that the land is before you. At this time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were still presiding in the land, which suggests to me that Abram, though he sees these other people, he sees it as good as theirs because God has already promised it. Again, he's seeing more through the eyes of faith, not through physical sight. Now, I want to make one comment that I never saw before and I wouldn't have seen unless I had other scholars who studied Genesis way longer than me. Well, let me show uh, really quick on the screen. Abram is facing east right now. And, oh, wait, wait, wait. Never eat soggy waffle. Okay, east. Okay. I, I want to stand with you. Okay, so north. Let's just imagine this is north. Probably not north. East. So they're facing east. So if he says go to the left, that's what? North. And if he goes go to the south, that's what? Okay, none of us know our orientation. <laughs> See, that's, that's what smartphones have done for us. We don't need to know what direction anything is. Now, keep that in mind because it's going to be very important. Now, let's look at verse 10. Would you read this out loud? And Lot lifted up his eyes. The author of Genesis, likely Moses, is throwing up some serious flags for us to notice what's going on here. Serious flags. Whenever you hear a word, it is often a good idea to consider when was that first time that word was shown in the Bible? What's a word that has some early sources in this? What do you see? Who said that? Garden. Garden of the Lord. We remember that. Garden of the Lord in Genesis chapter two through three, and then also Egypt. What we see here that you can only see a little bit, but you'll see it more as the narrative progresses, is that Lot wants to recreate Eden, and he's looking with his physical eyes, which we're going to see a contrast to what Abraham looks through, and he wants, he desires, he sees. Do you guys remember what that sounds like in, Genesis, in, in, in the garden? Sees with their eyes, saw is desirable. Who does that sound like? Eve. 
See, Genesis is throwing these flags to help us see these patterns because the Bible is not what just happened, but what always happens. These always happen in us and in all throughout history. And also seeing this word Egypt, even though Lot left Egypt, it it, it is possible. And I would say likely as we keep reading that Egypt hadn't left his heart yet. Verse 11, verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Okay. Now back to our orientation lesson, okay? So we have, uh, what, what are we doing? Okay, east is here, north is here, south is here. Abram gave him options of going left or right, which would be north and south. But what direction does Lot go? East. He went east. Look at verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. I see right here in verse 12, it distinguishing between the promised land and where Lot ended up. So Abram gives him north and south as options and and Lot goes, whoa, but I see this over here. It reminds me of the garden. It's like the garden and it's like Egypt. Let me go here. And he goes further east. Now, something I want to share with you is that throughout the book of Genesis is that East is commonly connected towards walking away from God. Let me show you real quick. If you're like, where, where are you getting that from? Genesis 3:24. <clears throat> he drove out the man and at the East of the garden, look at Genesis 4:16. This is after Cain murdered his brother. Then Cain went away from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod East. Of Eden. Now look at Genesis 11:2. This is right at the Tower of Babel. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. God has nothing, no problems with the east directionally. Like, not anyone here from the east coast? Yeah, God hates you. No, no, he doesn't. <laughs> My wife is from the east coast. But it's Genesis's way to flag movement away from Yahweh's promises and purposes. And so Lot choosing to put himself east rather than picking what he had as an option is him taking himself out of the promises, seizing his own destiny and promises rather than linking up with Abram and his purposes that God has for him. Now let's look at where he ends up. Verse 12 and 13. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, against Yahweh. Let me pause here quickly. But against the Lord is such a significant phrase because what we have done in our culture is we have so psychologized sin to make it merely a mistake, to make it merely... Not living your best life or letting yourself down and forget that foremost sin is a sin against God, your creator, whom you owe everything to. And when we make sure that sin is in that framework, then we can actually get self-healing. But if we start from the from the genesis of just us and it's all about us not being the best self, then you'll never find healing because you're not going to find the source for healing because it's still about you. See, sin is self-word oriented. And when you make it self-word oriented, then you'll actually never find healing because you can only find healing in your creator. These sodomites, we're going to learn more in a few chapters, are living in great rebellion towards the creator with all of their lives. 
Now let's think about Lot's life. What does Lot teach us? We're going to learn more about Lot in a future sermon. But what we see throughout Lot's life is that he prioritizes the natural without concern for the spiritual. You can't overread into it, but there's a lot of a lot of things here that gives us flags like the eastward and the fact that there was Sodom was a place of great sinners. But it's interesting because you would think Lot is just this wicked dude. But if you read Second Peter, if you're taking notes, Second Peter 2, 7 through 8, it literally says that Lot was greatly distressed by the wicked men and the evil in Sodom. And he was actually tormented day and night about it. This guy is bothered by the wickedness of this city. That's a good thing. And yet he was not bothered enough because over time, both of his daughters end up marrying sodomites and his wife fell in such love with Sodom and its ways that his wife long longingly looked back when she was fleeing the destruction of the city and God judged her and turned her to a pillar of salt. Though Lot inwardly was bothered by the sin of Sodom, it didn't bother him enough that he got as close to the door as he could. In fact, later on, we see in chapter 14, he actually moved into Sodom. Here's Lot advocating his spiritual leadership of his family. He's supposed to provide and love and protect them. And certainly he would be physically because what was he doing? He was picking a land that would make his family and his generations behind him prosperous. And yet he prioritized filling his pockets rather than taking care of his family's hearts. We see this regularly when people make passive decisions about their life. See, in our culture, we have certain Values that are pretty explicit and that one of the values is to make as much money as possible. Have as much opportunity for your kids as possible. And those are inherently bad things. But that is an unassailable, untouchable value in American culture. Right. And so what happens regularly in the church? I will meet someone and they'll say, hey, I'm moving. Pastor, just want to let you know I got a job that pays way more. And they think that's the trump card as if I should say glory to God, more money. Yes, of course you should take it. More money is why we exist. But it's almost the ultimate trump card that if you were to make more money and have more opportunity, then I don't need to pray about anything. God's blessing me. And then they'll then try to move across the country and then try to figure out if there's a good church there. Rather than, I won't even take this job unless there's a healthy church that I can further Jesus' mission there. We do that with where we live Careers, hobbies, schools, we prioritize good values, but we make them ultimate values over kingdom values. And then we want God to kind of follow us around like a genie and kind of bless us if we make any mistakes in the decision-making process. Cover up my mistakes, Lord. I didn't talk to you about this, but I'm talking about it now. Can you bless me, though I made mistakes and I shouldn't have gone here without asking you for permission first. Don't take a good gift like fertile land to prioritize over how it will affect your soul. Lot did not choose something inherently sinful, I believe. Picking a good land is not sinful in and itself, but it led to sin, certain sin, because he did not choose with regard primarily towards spiritual matters and how it affected his life and his family. That's why non-moral decisions actually matter, church. They do. 
Don't merely ask what's wrong with it or is it a sin? You cannot live on that level if you want to thrive as a Christian, as a disciple maker and fulfill your purposes. You have to ask, how does this relate to the greater purposes of Jesus in his kingdom and my relation to his family? And if you have dependence, how is this going to affect their soul? I can't tell you how many people have told me over the years, oh, we're making this move for the good of our kids. And I think to myself, but according to what metric? Better schools? That's good. I don't, don't, you know, I don't want your kids to be dumb. That's good. Safety? I want them safe. But what they're doing, again, they're prioritizing good gifts over kingdom values. Primarily. I'm not saying those can't be part of the decision-making process. They should be. Hear me. They should be. But they can't be definitive or primary. I want to share a, a quote from you from Montgomery Boyce about this passage. You may think that you are different from what? But if you have put your job ahead of your family's spiritual life, if you put your social advancement ahead of a proper association of God's people, if you let your choice of a home keep you from a church in which you can grow in faith and worship, you have moved from the highlands to the plains of the Jordan. Next slide. I know you will say that you can serve God there as well as in Bethel. Lot would have said, I am as eager as you to serve the Lord. After all, the cities of the plain need witnesses too. That was true. They did. But Lot's heart was not in witnessing. He was doing nothing for God. His heart was set on his possessions, sophistication, and glamour. And for that, he lost everything. It is significant that this is the first place wealth is mentioned in the Bible. Notice that although both Abram and Lot were wealthy, each had a different relationship to his own wealth. Abram had the flocks, but they did not have him. On the other hand, Lot's flocks possessed him. So let me ask you a question, church, and visitors, non-believers, skeptics. Do you make significant decisions that will affect your time, your money, your energy, your future with God as your primary Influencer. Do you let him be your primary dictator of what you do, why you do it? Especially if you have families, are you primarily thinking, how would this affect the Great Commission for my family? How would this affect their heart towards the Lord? This is hard. This is hard. And it takes knowing your Bibles really well to do it well. And if you don't know your Bibles well, it takes really honest and also very humbling, vulnerable, seeking counsel from people who do know their Bibles and know God's heart and his values. And I just want to encourage that. I know we do that a lot at All People Search, and I want to encourage us to continue to cultivate that humility. I can't tell you how many times I've made, I've wanted to make significant decisions that would affect my family and other godly men and women spoke into my heart and showed me that I was not prioritizing Jesus. I try to leave seminary every month. (laughs) Seriously. I try to leave this church once. And I needed godly brothers and sisters to speak truth when I couldn't see clearly. We need each other to make sure we know why we're doing what we're doing so easy for us to run away from problems, so easy to just buy a house or go to another church and do a situation and not deal with why. Is this what Jesus wants? Is this for the kingdom or is it for me? And I'm trying to put some Christianese on it to bless it. 
So a good word for every one of us here is this passage. But seek first kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything will be added. You get this. All that other stuff comes with it. Now let's refocus on Abram. This section is so encouraging what we're going to read because we've all screwed up and yet God is so faithful and patient. He's so patient despite sometimes our slowness. God is going to continue his promises from Genesis 12 and he's going to expand and be a little bit more specific. Remember, look, look, remember last time I preached, I talked about the tendency for us to say, God, I will obey you once you answer all my questions and I get it. Remember that? I do that all the time. And now God is mercifully showing him more of the promises and Abram just needed to be obedient and wait. And that's a good check for all of us because sometimes we don't, we refuse to move until we know exactly what God is going to do. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Think about this. It's amazing. Initially, Abraham just said, hey, look to the left and the right, the north and the south. But God is now giving them east and west too. On God's terms, on God's way. Do you see that? God is expanding that which Abram originally thought was his. And God is giving him more because he's doing it on God's ways and God's terms. Instead of grasping for himself, if Lot just waited and stuck around with the promises, he would have inherited that in God's ways and God's time and God's blessing. And then verse 17, he has him walk through the length and breadth of the land. For I'll give to you. What God is asking Abram to imagine is mind-boggling. We're talking about a huge amount of land for just one old man. It, I, I want to share something with you interesting. That in the original Hebrew, there's a particle here. Don't, don't worry about the word particle. That is please. Please. It's not translated in most English translations because it's maybe because it's just too insane. Literally, it's like this. It's on the, on the screen. Lift up, please, your eyes and look. Remember two things. Remember Lot looked, but he was looking himself. And this time God is getting him to look. God is lifting up his eyes. I want to show you something. Scholar Victor Hamilton shares that this word, please, is used 60 times in Genesis. But only four times in the entire Old Testament does God, is the God the one who's using the word in dressing human beings. In each of these four passages, God asks somebody to do something that transcends human comprehensions. Comprehension. Okay, what does that mean? Why are you telling me this, Sam? This is what I think. Sometimes God will ask his people to obey or trust in something that just sounds so absolutely absurd and impossible. And what God is doing in these four times with Abram, or the times he speaks and says please, is that he's sympathetic to the insanity of what he's asking. He's not like, come on, I'm God. I'm telling you, just trust me. Get Get the program, Abram. I'm God. But he's like, please. He, he's using words to meet Abram where he's at because he understands the insanity of what he's asking him to do. I think that is so encouraging for me that God is so compassionate with our frailties or our weakness. And he's meeting us there. And he knows that sometimes he's asking you, church, of things that just seem too hard, too hard, too much. And just know if you are in that situation where it just feels too impossible, that God knows that it feels like that. 
and he's compassionate. He's patient and he will help you through it. Amen. We're going to see throughout verse 15 and 16. I will repeat it over and over again. If you, if you like writing your Bible, you could just underline or highlight I will over and over again, which is just tells us definitively that God is the one who's going to make it happen. And then finally in verse 16, he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. What? That's insane. Like I have so much dust in my house. If I just look with the right sunbeam. God's saying all the dust of the earth, right? He's using insane language to show Abram that's far more than you can ever imagine. But it's one thing to listen to a promise, but what will Abraham do it? Last verse, verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Faith always leads to action. He trusts it and he makes his camp there. And yet, let me just close with this, church. We all struggle to obey. We all struggle to trust these promises. Sometimes they sound too lofty, too impossible, too far. Maybe you held on to God's promises that time, but then it felt too long. You couldn't hold on. And you're like, God, I can't do it anymore. And, and here's the good news. Though you have failed many times, there is one who never failed in trusting God. Jesus, the son, inherit, had possession of all the universe And instead of holding on to it, he willingly laid it aside and became like a slave, suffering and entered into our world. He laid down his riches of the universe and took upon flesh, entered into our existence, entered into poverty, into suffering. And he was offered at one time in his life by the temporary ruler of the world, all the riches. Just bow down to me, Jesus. Seize it without suffering. I'll give you all of the world if you just go my way. And you don't have to do that whole cross thing. But God loved us in this way. And Jesus loved us so much that he rejected easy grabbing for himself, but rather laying down and pouring out himself like a drink offering so that he could rescue us. He, to do this though, he had to take on the full punishment for all of us here who are stingy and greedy, and selfish, and unfaithful, and untrusting. So on the cross, this is what happened. Let me just remind you of the gospel church. On the cross, Jesus, though he was perfect, was treated as if he was the greediest man who ever lived, the most unfaithful man who ever lived, because you and I are that. And God considered Jesus as if he was that, and then now, those who trust in Jesus, we are treated and considered as if we've always been trusting, and generous, and faithful, and loving, This is the great exchange. And so Jesus takes all of our past upon us and our present and future. And the debt is nailed upon him and he suffers and he absorbs the punishment that our unfaithfulness is due. And Jesus absorbs it all. And all of us in here who are putting our hope and trust in Jesus are forgiven as if we've never done that. And we're treated like we're Jesus. And those here who reject that are treated as they deserve. Treated as we all deserve. And that's the beauty and the gravity of the gospel. And if you want that kind of forgiveness, a restored relationship, because not only do you get forgiveness of sins, but the Holy Spirit will then indwell in you. And as you grow, you're going to increasingly live like Jesus did. So originally you're just considered like Jesus because of God's kindness. But increasingly by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will live like Jesus. 
And that's the beauty of what God calls us into. And if you're not sure you actually have peace with God and you're afraid that you're going to actually take on what you deserve for your unfaithfulness and not giving the creator what you what is owe him. Would you come talk with me? I'd love to pray with you. And for all the rest of us, church, I want to just remind you, I want to invite the band up to freshly put your hope and trust and submission to the Lord Jesus to be Lord over every decision. Every decision, church, let him be Lord of every decision and let him be the Lord of your future and your promises and let your heart rests that your good father has good plans for you and you do not have to grasp it. You don't have to go out of his way to make it happen. You can trust him and in your faithfulness, he will provide for you more than you can imagine. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that you meet us in our unfaithfulness. You meet us when we waver and we doubt you and we think we know better. You meet us and you're, you're merciful and forgiving even when we totally disregard your counsel and we just bulldoze our head into sin and suffering and struggle and that that you welcome us back like like the prodigal son is welcomed back by the father. The prodigal son reminds me of Lot where he's given this option and he takes what he wants for himself and yet the, the heavenly father is waiting for us. And so Lord, if there's anyone here who's away, distant and far from you, their heart is hardened Lord, would you draw them back right now? Would you show them that you're waiting for them with embrace? And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who are not trusting you with all their heart, let them know that you are the one they exist for, that you're a better Lord than they are, and that they're in grave danger if they continue to reject you as their their rightful sovereign and king. Father, I pray that if there's anything I said that was not consistent with your word, either in manner or in content, would you correct me? But that which is of you, of heaven, of your hearts, let it deeply shape us, Lord. We want to be a people that are shaped by your values and all their decisions are funneled through the kingdom and not through our own desires and what we can only see, but help us be led by faith and not by sight. So mark our people to be like that. In Jesus' name, amen.